Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these geeky conversations with people about all kinds of topics. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I am joined by Dr. Yeshaya Gruber. He is the professor of Jewish history and culture and the host of the Roundtable Talks and often hosts the monthly Hot Topic Seminars for IBC. We are going to talk about his course called Exploring Jewish Interpretation, which I was really glad to finally have an opportunity to listen to because the historian in him shone through, and I was introduced to several types of interpretations and interpreters that were not familiar to me. So welcome into our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Shia, I really like the way that you organized this class. And then I thought it was really interesting when I was listening to it that you start with dispelling confusion or maybe highlighting assumptions, maybe that people don't actually know that they have. Um, So you throw out a couple terms, things like there's Jewish Christian academic and kind of separating those out and saying, what do we think about this? Or what's the difference or the correlation between Jewish and biblical interpretation. And it just made me think, as I was listening to the course, I just thought, what is it? I mean, you're an accomplished historian. What is it that has happened in your experience that made you realize you really needed to start with some of these assumptions that people may have? Wow. Well, that's quite a lot to start with. And thank you for your kind words, Cindy. And it's a Wonderful to be here again, having this conversation. Um, as we were just uh, chatting before we started, you know, we both, like many people, probably most of the people in the audience, are a bit overwhelmed with all sorts of tasks from day to day. And so it will be delightful just to sort of relax for a little bit and have a nice conversation about these interesting topics. So thank you uh, for inviting me again. Yeah, so in exploring Jewish interpretation, why did I want to dispel some confusion or assumptions at the beginning? Uh, <laughs> it's a good question, and um, I hardly know where to start. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably you've noticed that there is a bit of confusion in the world about all sorts of things, and we all come with our own assumptions to any topic, of course. And I'm just reminded of Socrates and the famous um, parable or analogy of the men in the cave chained so that they can only see the shadows on the wall and, and they think that's reality. Someone comes and tells them, no, there's a whole world out there. There's an actual sun and there's green grass and they just can't believe this person who comes to tell them about something that doesn't fit into what they already know. So I, th- I thought it was very important to... Um, say a few words along those lines, at least, at the beginning of the course. I didn't use that parable or analogy from Socrates, um, from Plato's Republic, that one comes from. 
But we did talk a little bit about, you know, some of the assumptions people may have when they come to the Bible or when they think about religious experience. I'll give you a very simple one as an example. Very often I get the question, uh, you know, what is the Jewish interpretation of X? You know, and it could be this particular verse in Deuteronomy, in which case I'll say, ask Dr. Parker, because she's a student. <laughs> <laughs> she, she loves uh, Deuteronomy and she knows everything about it. Um, or it might be a particular verse in one of the prophets. Um, or it might be a concept like, you know, resurrection or faith or love or something like that. So, um, you know, the answer to that question in a way is kind of simple. And the answer is no, which is to say there is no single Jewish interpretation of anything, of any verse, of any word, of any concept. What it is, is a big discussion, a vast discussion that goes across centuries and across cultures, you know, because Jews were spread out all over the world and they were influenced by many different local cultures, from Greek to Persian to um, European and so forth. Um, we want to take it into modern the modern period, you know, the Americas, uh, you know, Latin American culture, North American culture. So um, Jewish interpretation is this massive um, discussion that no one can sort of grasp in its entirety in one lifetime. But I wanted to give people a sort of glimpse of what it's all about. And to do that, we have to dispel some assumptions at the beginning. Mm. That's really great to even point out that it's more complex, it's fuller, it's thicker in concept than a simple, you know, we always start with these simple, we want to ask a simple question, get a simple answer and move on. Like we want the Instagram version of an answer and to go, you have to pause the scrolling and yeah. sit with that just a moment and realize that it's tied to more than just one thing. Just as we talk a lot at IDC about um, Second Temple Jewish culture a lot, this shows up in a lot of our, cl our classes. And we constantly say it's not monolithic. There were a lot of different people who had very different beliefs, very different opinions on things. And to realize when we're asking these long historical questions, we're just pulling in an additional pile of diverse views. Um, influenced by cultures as you were talking about. And I think that's just really good to keep in mind when we're talking about interpretive questions. Well, I mean, uh, there are so many thoughts that I could sort of elaborate on right now, just in response to what you were saying there. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is the fact that people very often don't know where their ideas come from. So we yes. have all sorts of ideas floating around our minds and floating around our cultures and conversations. And we have no idea where they come from. I mean, I would say that about myself as well. Probably most of the things that, you know, have passed through my mind, I don't know or even remember if I did know where they came from originally. But it is good to get some sense of where things come from, especially if it's sort of directing your life or determining the direction in which you want to go or the approach you have towards the Bible and towards relating with God. It's very good to at least get some sort of sense of where your interpretations and ideas are coming from. So one of the things that we do at the beginning is to talk about Jewish interpretations, Christian interpretations, academic interpretations, and all three of these things are different and they are distinct 
to a certain extent. And they are all complex because none of them are monolithic in the least. Um, but they also, all three, overlap to a certain extent. So, so it is a very complex and shifting ground. And um, that does go to the question you're, you're raising about how people often want to ask you know, something simple and they expect a simple answer. But life is, is more complex than that. And the Bible is more complex than that. So part of what I would like to do in this course, Exploring Jewish Interpretation, is just open up uh, the vista a little bit, open up people's viewpoint to see more possibilities, to understand how many thinkers have grappled with questions and what, you know, is really the landscape of biblical interpretation. It's not a simple question and a simple yes or no answer that gives us the truth, so to speak, but it's an ongoing discussion, like I said. And it's about something that can't be reduced to just a really simple pat answer. So that's kind of another thing that was coming to mind as you were talking. Uh, towards the end of the course, I get to Rabbi Sachs, who was a very famous rabbi who um, passed away just last year. And he, he had a wide appeal to people of all sorts of different traditions and faiths, for that matter, um, Jews, Christians, and others. And... Uh, one of the points he made in a text that we looked at in this course is um, that the Torah, the, the books of Moses, as we usually call them, they what are they about? You know, what's the purpose of them? Is it to tell us about cosmology? Is it to tell us about history? Is it to tell us about how to make bricks or, you know, how to run an economy? Well, yes and no to all those questions, maybe. But the real purpose, in his view, is to suggest how to live, to ask the question, who should I be? Who am I created to be? And what kind of a person should I become? So it's a book of instruction about how to live life. So the, that's not something that can be reduced to just a simple yes or no or technical pat answer. Especially because the answer to how to live life is embedded in a cultural document, but being asked in a modern time. And so hmm. something has to happen there that is going to be an interesting conversation in and of itself. Yes, for sure. And, of, and you know, in this course, we go through a wide range of Jewish thinkers from ancient times through medieval, the medieval period and into modern times. And um, we touch briefly on you know, how they were all influenced by their particular environment, the culture that they lived in, the thinkers that they were exposed to, the discussions that were going on in their day, and how they addressed those things. And of course, all of us who are reading and studying the Bible today are doing the same thing. You know, we're thinking about things in our own context and from our own culture. Um, so it is important to keep that in mind with regard to any interpretation. But also, like you were saying, uh, keep in mind that biblical texts were themselves written in particular cultural, historical, and linguistic contexts. That was one of the things I wrote down about your course that I really appreciated was the fact, and because I'm so context-minded and I like the geography parts of things, and you mentioned that when you're talking about the different interpreters, and I remember learning biblical interpretation primarily from a Christian point of view, but these methods or versions of interpretation were just laid out as theories. And it mm. wasn't until I learned 
how they came out of a cultural context, how they came out of, say, a European modern context or uh, a South American context that you start to go, oh, now I see why those were the questions they were trying to answer. Now it makes sense that that was the method that developed at Mm. that time. And so I just loved how you brought that in, in the process of doing your course, because it's something I wish I had when I was doing my own study of methods and interpretations. Um, I think it, it changes everything because it makes you realize like that particular method or interpretation may not be as crucial right now because we're not dealing with the same questions, the same um, rubs up against our cultural context or societal context anymore. So that that was such a valuable part of your class. I just wanted to make sure that I told you, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. And, um, you know, I guess with all of my courses, I see them as kind of a beginning, not an endpoint, but an opening. Um, We've talked before in this program about my course on the name of God. By the way, that was among the first episodes we did for this podcast almost exactly a year ago. If you joined us later in the season, I would say you should make an effort to go back and listen to it. I loved that conversation. I'll add a quick link in the show notes of the episode, but you can also find it on all of your favorite podcast sites or wherever you listen to this episode. Anyway, Dr. Gruber was talking about the method behind how he organizes his course. And in that course, you know, we look at some of the verses that have to do with the name of God, yud heh vav those four letters in Hebrew. And then at the end, I tell students, you know, now go and look up the other, you know, 7,000 occurrences in the Hebrew Bible and study them because (laughs) you can find out much more. And it's kind of the same here. I mean... Like, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, Jewish interpretation is such a vast sea that no single person can possibly comprehend all of it in a lifetime. Um, But there are a lot of key points that have been been identified as sort of watersheds or turning points or main figures. So what we can do is we can look a little bit at them, try to understand a bit of their background. So that helps with what you were saying, you know, understanding how important that is. People can go further into the background of these um, scholars and thinkers and linguists, rabbis, if, if they're so inclined. Um, but we give a bit of that. And then because we can't consider their entire corpus of interpretations, we just look at basically the first verse of Genesis or the first two verses. Sometimes we get to the third verse maybe. But So it's it gives you, I wouldn't say a little bit of everything, but hopefully just a different perspective on how to approach these things, how to see the whole spectrum of views throughout history, um, how different thinkers have approached, you know, even the same seemingly simple verse, like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, such a wide variety of views just on that. Um, So how can we understand this? I mean, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Why did they have such different views? Where were they coming from? And that brings us back to a certain extent to their background, the questions that they were asking in their context and things like that. I'd really like to ask you about one or maybe even a couple other interpreters, uh, because I think we don't always think about how the growth of Islam in the world 
has influenced Christian and Jewish interpretations. And so you make very specific mention of Sadia Gaon and he, well, you say he's reacting to or with or against rationalistic Islamic philosophy. So what is it that is happening in the world that is creating a movement or type of thought that he is then reacting against? Well, in the medieval period, there were many Jews, um, the majority of Jews, who lived in essentially the Middle East and uh, came under Islamic rule. And they were uh, usually very interested in, uh, they couldn't help but be interested in because it was all around them, they were influenced by Islamic philosophy. Now, one thing that happened at this period is that Islamic philosophy was in contrast to what existed in Europe at the time, was preserving and dialoguing with the ancient Greek thinkers. So they were doing, you know, a kind of similar process to what we see with many Christian or Jewish thinkers at various times in history, but they were sort of trying to uh, reconcile faith and reason, so to speak. Mm. And so they were were reading Aristotle and Aristotle was uh, um, translated into Arabic, it was preserved in Arabic and... They were discussing the ideas from these ancient Greek philosophers and in mixing them with their religious understandings from Islam. And there was there were large Jewish communities present in the area as well who were also reading these texts and who were using those ideas that came out of medieval Islamic philosophy. And like Philo, in his ancient setting in Alexandria, they were using the same terms and concepts to dialogue with the people around them and to develop their own ideas. So Saadia Gaon is just one of many thinkers in this respect. Uh, another one we touch on in the course is Ibn Ezra, very famous um, linguist and interpreter who did kind of intricate analysis and, and in a sense tried to rein in the wild religious speculation that, you know, can often hold sway when people aren't balanced by rationalistic considerations, when they have, you know, only the let's say, religious-based orientation, and they don't also take into consideration common sense and what we know about the world and things like that. So, you know, there's all there are all these dialogues going on. I mean, the Jews are dialoguing with the Muslims, the rationalists are dialoguing with the spiritualists, um, all sorts of different interesting parts of this history of Jewish interpretation. There's Rambam or Maimonides, who's a rationalist, and then there's Nachmanides just after him, who argues because, you know, he's less rationalistic and more Kabbalistic. He wants to see the mystical dimension of things. So again, it's it's this continual argument and they're often talking about the same texts and the same issues and going back and forth. And by the way, this interaction of Greek philosophy with Islamic thought and with Jews eventually is um, actually what helps to produce uh, a lot of the European transition to modernity, if you will, the Renaissance and and everything that comes after that, uh, as there's this revival of classical learning and attention to textual detail and so forth. So that, that it's, a, it's a big part of the story of Western civilization in the end. But again, we see that each interpreter, on the one hand, is discussing in a, in a sort of synchronistic way with his contemporaries, but also diachronically, you know, throughout history with all of the ones that came before and trying to reconsider what they were saying. And so another modern 
rabbi that I look at is Joseph Soloveitchik, who was a um, very, very important figure in modern orthodoxy. And so we look at what he says about the beginning of Genesis. But then to understand what he's saying, you have to go back to Isaac Luria, who is a Kabbalist, because he's mentioning that. And to understand that, you have to go back to Rashi. And, you know, so these themes build through the course. We look at one and then the next, and we see how some of the themes get reinterpreted and built on. And Soloveitchik has a really interesting way of looking at Genesis. Again, he's not, he's not caught up just in details. He looks at details, but he's not caught up only in the details. He says, well, what is going on here? Man is created out of the cosmic dust. Cosmic dust. Why does he use that expression? It's almost like Philo, the cosmos again. Here we are. Back to science. But then he adds in this very Kabbalistic idea from Isaac Luria of Tzimtzum, that God contracted himself in order to create the universe. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, it comes from asking these big questions, you know, going back behind the curtain, so to speak, because the question is, well, if God is infinite, as the Kabbalists believed in Sof, how is there room for something else to exist? If something is infinite, wouldn't that be the only thing? So they had this idea of tzimtzum, contraction, that God kind of creates the space for something else to exist by contracting himself, which is an intriguing idea. Now, you can't prove that, of course, but it's a very intriguing idea. And then Soloveitchik puts these two ideas together, tzimtzum, the idea that God himself contracted, you know, kind of sacrificed a certain aspect of himself in for others, for us to be created. Um, combined with, you know, the nature of man coming from the earth. And he says, well, this is morality. This is where you get morality from, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. Um, I won't give away the entire argument, but just to say, like, this is the kind of very creative reinterpretation um, that's going on all the time. Shia, you remind me of a rabbi I had I, I know him more personally than I've only been in one of his courses. He has his students read a whole bunch of things and they come to class and they're like, I can't understand any of it. And he's like, well, of course not. You're not <laughs> supposed to. This is why you study as a group. This is why you study with a rabbi. And everyone goes, oh, <laughs> I think your course is a little bit like that. <laughs> There's well, I hope so. A lot Thank of you. things <laughs> just kind of on the surface that people would go, I don't, I, I don't know how to make sense of that. And it's like, no, no, no. But that's why you study with Yeshaya Gruber. Because <laughs> he can help you make sense of that. Well, I, don't, I think yeah. it's a really good, it's a strong aspect of your class. Well, thank you, Cindy. I hope that I can help people make sense of history and tradition and text and interpretation. Of course, I don't claim to have the answer either. But I think, again, like some of the conversation already has suggested, the goal isn't really to have a precise answer to every little intricate dogmatic question. The goal is more to think along the lines um, of Psalms, which uh, Rabbi Sachs quotes in the passage I was referring to. You know, what is man? A question to heaven. What is man? Well, who knows? Who could answer that question? Uh, C.S. Lewis had an interesting answer to that question. He said, um, it wasn't exactly an answer to the question of what is man, but he said something like, um, to be a son of Adam or daughter of Eve, that's the way he, he wrote very often, is enough to stoop the shoulders of the greatest conqueror, something like that, and to lift the head of the poorest beggar. You know, I'm, I'm butchering it, but it's something like that. The whole 
Bible is filled with this sort of speculation about our in-between nature. The same Psalm says, you know, a little lower than I think the Elohim in, in Hebrew, like a little lower than the spiritual beings. We're kind of in between the creator and the earth, you know, between God and animals. We're, we're sort of have a spark of the divine, but we also have this animal nature, which goes back to the commandments in the Torah as well, which is why there are certain things that as humans, God told Israel, you know, you have to like take a time out and wash yourself and cleanse yourself when when these aspects of your animal nature come out, so to speak, you know, everything to do with birth and death and sex and blood, you know, it's not the same as God. It's not the same as the divine. So we have to deal with that in some way. So that too is talking about like this relationship. What is man? So maybe we we'll, can end with that question, which is not an easy one to answer. <laughs> Actually, I do have one more question. For okay. You, which okay. is just because you've mentioned Kabbalah a couple times in our conversation. And I just know because of behind the scenes look at IBC, you are coming out with a course on Kabbalah. So can you give our listeners, this will be the first reveal, those who are listening to the podcast, uh, what kinds of things can they anticipate that will be in that course? Yes, coming out Bezrat Hashem very soon. Um, working on it, there's a lot of material. And the course is called Kabbalah in the Bible. I think that many people have sort of extreme reactions to the idea of Kabbalah or Kabbalah. They fall into two camps usually. One, they're very excited in this very mysterious type of secret knowledge and they want to jump into it and find the real answers to the questions. You know, it's almost the same motivation as we were talking before. What's the answer? But the, the ordinary answers don't suffice. Everyone knows that, you know, they, they don't often don't make sense. They're not satisfying. So what's the real secret answer? I want the secret answer, you know, from this mystical tradition that's going to tell me the real solution to things. And then on the other side, you have people who view Kabbalah as the occult and forbidden um, sort of spiritu spiritism that's opposed to uh, what they might view as true religion or the right way to worship God or things like that. And they would be very wary, if not afraid, of this sort of mystical approach. So one of the things that I try to do in the course is simply to demystify Kabbalah a little bit, explain a bit what it is. Um, it's also quite varied. It, there are many different modes of Kabbalah. It's true that some of them are things like practical magic or, you know, what people sometimes call white magic. You know, that is part of it, although I think that's not the main part of it. Um, and in fact, that, that aspect was condemned by many Kabbalists themselves. Um, other modes are more philosophical or even mathematical, you know, having to do with manipulation of numbers, speculation about the nature of things in the world. More is sort of theological or theosophic uh, along the lines of this Tsum idea. It's not something that can be rationally proven, but it's... For some reason, it's worth speculating about, well, again, it's part of that relationship. How do we even exist if God is in Sof, if God is infinite, you know, and why? Um, so there's no single answer to that. And maybe the Kabbalists make a mistake, um, those of them that think they found the answer. So I, I kind of go through the different modes of um, Kabbalah, different types of interpretations. We consider 
Kabbalistic views of creation, of the spirit, of humanity, men and women, of love, of the purpose of life, of relationship with the divine. And, you know, I'm not necessarily in either course, the Kabbalistic one or the Jewish interpretation one that's more general, I'm not necessarily advocating all of these interpretations or even any of them for that matter. I just want people to gain a broader exposure and appreciation for the ways that people have negotiated this most important question. You know, what is Adam? What is humanity? And how can we live properly in this world trying to love God and our neighbor? Well, there you have it, an exclusive look at a new IBC course that is coming out soon. You heard it first here on the podcast. While you wait for that course to come out, you can explore Jewish interpretations with Dr. Gruber. There's an easy link to use in the show notes of this episode. It's super easy to sign up. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>